Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Uh, tonight, we have Ms. Laura Summers. Hey, hey. Hey, and we've got Mr. Dan Morganti. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for being with us. So, did you know that it's National Get Online Week? Well, hopefully you've all been uh, getting online anyway, but there's plenty of people in our community who probably aren't online as much as uh, would be helpful for them. So, we'll talk about all the different initiatives that are happening as part of Get Online Week and how we can all get involved. Plus... If Melbourne conducted exit interviews anytime someone moved overseas for work, what might we learn? Laura and I have decided to put on our human resources hats and chat with two stars from our tech sector to find out um, what they'd say in an exit interview. So we're going to have a bit of fun with that later in the show tonight. Stick around for it. Before we get there, what's going on in news, Laura? Well... There's been this project run by the New South Wales state government to try and find a viable approach to providing digital copies of driver's licenses for identity proofing purposes. So think when you apply for a mortgage or when you need to like get a rental car and you show them your driver's license and they take a little photocopy. And that's sort of the analog of the world we've come from. And they were thinking about sort of keeping that paper in the chain where you, you have a photocopy or some kind of screen cap printout of your digital driver's license. But they've basically found that this is not a tenable approach. So there's a piece that was just published in IT News um, basically saying they've scrapped this idea and they're going back to the drawing board to try and come up with a digital end-to-end approach, um, which is fascinating. I'm I'm very um, on board with the idea that paper is always a security vulnerability and that not knowing how and when that paper trail is going to be archived or destroyed is like a a continual issue. So like, I'm kind of on board with not adding to that kind of existing security flaw. But what what do you guys think? Like, do you have any sort of vibe on digital driver's license in general? Like, is that something (laughs) you're into? Well, uh, with my information manager hat on, I would say that any vulnerabilities you have with paper tend to be, um, they're just different sorts of vulnerabilities in electronic copies. It's just different problems. Uh, But both are interesting. I think the portability Mm -hmm. of electronic things and just, you know, the general trend that way makes a lot of sense. The idea that it doesn't become such a nightmare um, having to keep track of this little card that's so important to verifying your identity is quite important. So that can be good. Very interesting. Yeah. Sorry, Dan. The only thing that came into my head was uh, like using a paper ID to get into a bar underage. Not that that affects me now, but that's still where my head is uh, 15 mm-hmm. years later, you know. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably some more serious uh, security concerns other than just sneaking into a bar underage, though. Oh, yeah. look, they're so complex now. It's not like people can get a razor blade out and take apart a laminate and get in there. I mean, they've got holograms and they're, you know, quite sophisticated laminated sort of things and can I just say y'all are soft I had I I grew up in the (laughs) land where you have to be 21 to drink so like y'all getting to drink from 18 onwards is like it's easy easy town you're you're fine like I think people can wait till 18 and like up until that point they'll have 
a cheeky beer in their backyard barbecue and everything will be fine. <laughs> um, but to your point, Vanessa, one more thing that I think is interesting to think about in this space, there's so there's already been a bunch of scanning of these physical driver's licenses, and there was an issue um, not that long ago, like back in August, where 54,000 of these scanned licenses were publicly available on an AWS instance. Like, So like that just goes to show you how big these data leaks can be, and that's not the problem of the the driver's license being digitized. It was the the you know original card licenses that had been scanned and uploaded, but that information is still very easy to skim off if you have good OCR or text recognition. So yeah. um, those, technically, those are Laura, you're talking about when when these were in soft copy form though, which is, you know, what I'm saying is you don't yes. eradicate the risks just because it's not hard copy anymore. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's very yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Like the complexities abound. <laughs> they do. It's a bit of fun, though. Uh, definitely a complex problem to solve. Something else that's happening in New South Wales is uh, kind of interesting. I like that it's hitting in the uh, renewable sort of sector. So Ausgrid has partnered with a startup that's called Jolt um, to try and convert a bunch of power boxes in Sydney to electronic vehicle chargers. Now, one of the issues that aspiring electronic vehicle owners face is that if you haven't got a garage or an on-property sort of area to keep your car, then it can be quite challenging to get it charged all the time. And, yeah, they're, they're just trialling a creative solution to how this might work in a city with a lot of street parking like Sydney. So I think it's a really um, creative attempt to try and look at how do you change behaviours and what sort of incentives do you need. Um, these... Initial charging stations will be free to use and powered by green energy. And because of that, they are putting some constraints on how long people can use them for. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've got like a power constraint, which would probably tap out around 15, 30 minutes, depending on, you know, what you're trying to use it for. They haven't been explicit about what the charge rate would be above and beyond that if people wanted to stay beyond the free thing, but they're thinking about that. Um, but like realistically, each electronic vehicle would be allowed to add about seven kilowatts um, free power to their batteries each day in around 15 minutes. Um, so if you did that every day and you're only, you know, living in a tight space like Sydney, that could that could do a lot for you. Yeah, so worth looking at. It'd be interesting to see if we get initiatives like that here. I love that they're using existing infrastructure. How great is that? Like not adding more to like the the physical space our roads need to take up, I think is a really smart approach. Nice. Dan, what have you got for us in international news? Um, yeah, so just like living in a spy movie, the US government has formally charged six Russian intelligence officers for carrying out destructive malware attacks with an aim to disrupt and destabilise other nations and cause monetary losses. Uh, the six men, who look exactly what you'd expect Russian hackers to look like, pale faces, military uniforms and no smiles, um, they're part of a unit called <laughs> 777... Seven, Sorry, 74455 of the Russian Main Intelligence Directorate, GRU. Um, the names, all very Russian names. I won't try to uh, pronounce any of them now, but there's a lot of Iloviches and, and Drenkos and things like that. Um, the, the main thing they were charged with is uh, creating a certain malware programs, uh, the Not Peter Olympic Destroyer and Kill Disk malware. Olympic Destroyer being used primarily to disrupt the Pyongyang, no, sorry, not Pyongyang, the winter, the la latest Winter Olympics. 
Um, and uh, yeah, they... disc was very famous. I remember that. You know, yeah, lots of notices going out around that. Yeah, so these six men are, uh, according to the um, American Department of Justice, the most prolific uh, Amer- uh, Russian hackers uh, in the world. And yeah, they they've. Uh, a- it's attacked everywhere, uh, France, Georgia, the Netherlands, uh, Republic of Korea, Ukraine, the UK and the US. Even uh, in the US especially, there was uh, an incident where Heritage Valley in Pennsylvania, uh, medical facilities were attacked and uh, patient records and um, essential medical services went offline um, from the attack. So uh, pretty far-reaching and uh, almost goalless, but it's for the... Um, strict benefit of the Russian government. Um, yeah, so very interesting that the US government's actually charged uh, Russian citizens. Yeah. yeah, not an easy thing to do. Not at all. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We've got Dan running our panel this evening and uh, Laura in her studio and I'm Vanessa in mine. Did you know that this is Get Online Week? Beginning in 2007 as an initiative to bring digital inclusion to national attention in the UK, the campaign has since grown across the UK and Australia. Thousands of events will take place in communities across both territories this week. Jess Wilson is National Director of the Good Things Foundation and they're organisers of Get Online Week. She's here to tell us more about how we can all get involved. Welcome, Jess. Hi, Vanessa. Great to be here. Lovely to have you. Look, we're actually in the midst of National Get Online Week, so we appreciate you coming during your very busy time. It does run until the end of Sunday. And we wonder this year, what particular challenges have there been for event organisers this week? Well, as you can imagine, Vanessa, just like everything in um, our country and in the world, um, COVID has changed the way we have to do things, and that's particularly around events. I mean, last year we had a lot of face-to-face events and they're community events, um, so at community centres and libraries, all running sessions to support people to have a go at being online or have a go at technology for the first time. But clearly that can't happen um, this year, particularly in Melbourne and in Victoria, and so people have had to really change up what they're doing and so there are digital trivia nights and there are um, uh, digital trivia um, scavenger hunts and a whole lot of other kind of events that people are having. I've even been to a digital morning tea this morning. Um, And so it's really just an opportunity for people to get together, um, to learn some new skills about digital technology and how to get online um, and and have a good time. Um, So on this show, we probably consider ourselves digital natives and it might be hard to get our heads into this space. So can you tell us why is it so important to have access to online, to just being online and like, you know, who, who's really missing out there? Like, who are the people that we're not seeing getting access to the world of the World Wide Web? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it is really hard for lots of people to understand that there are people that are not online. But there's about two and a half million people in our country that are not online at all. And there's about four million people that are probably limited users of the internet. So they might have a phone and be able to um, text or message. But if you ask them to apply for a job online or to be able to Google something, they wouldn't actually know how to do that. So that's a lot of people um, who are missing out on the benefits of, of being online. And I think COVID has shown us so 
much how important it is for us to just for our health and well-being to be connected to others and to be able to use the internet to do that. Um, so the people that are mostly missing out, there's a, a whole range of, of people, but it's people who are older. So people 65 plus are definitely probably the most digitally excluded in our community. But it's not just them. It's, you know, people with disabilities. Um, it's um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's people with low education, low income who may not have used uh, technology or have to use technology in their employment. Um, so it's a whole range of people and mostly people that are missing out already. So that's why we want to have Get Online Week to make sure that they, they don't miss out and that they have the same opportunities that we all do. So Jess, it sounds like um, in addition to that audience, I was listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast the other day, and there's also another area of the low online skills, um, because while he might have been exaggerating, he talked about how he doesn't need to Google anything, and that's what assistance is for and what have you. <laughs> so I think you might add another little audience to target there. <laughs> that would be great. I think so, my goodness me. <laughs> totally it's okay. It's okay. Hillary Clinton wouldn't, wouldn't do a yes and on that one with him. She, she decided, no, that's embarrassing, Conan. You have yeah. to be able to Google. Very good. <laughs> so given these changes, um, how many events are we set to see in Australia this year to give people a sense of the scale of this week? Yeah, look, there's over 700 community organisations participating this this week. And although, um, you know, some of them only having one event, we know some of them are having five across the week. Um, so all kind of culminating in different sessions to come together and, and talk to each other, including a hokey pokey online world record attempt, which is happening on Friday. So I think um, there's a whole lot of different events. And so I think that there's definitely over a thousand events happening this week, which is brilliant. Um, so, oh, please, Dan. Uh, so, four million, that, that uh, four million users, not oh, people not on the internet, sorry, that's uh, kind of surprising to me because, uh, I mean, I just love the internet, but um, what, what, what's the, uh, the spread of people in that four million? Is, is it people who are aware of the internet and don't want to uh, uh, participate in it and mm -hmm. people who want to participate but can't get uh, involved either from technical uh, lack of knowledge or um, their, yeah. where they live? So, I mean, there's a difference. Two and a half million people not online at all and then four million limited users. Oh, so, that, so I suppose the key thing, though, um, for all of those people is there's, there's three key barriers that we talk about for, for being online. One of them is around um, access. So that's actually having, you know, technology close to them um, and, and being able to, you know, they've got NBN connection or they've got a phone that has data, so they've got a device that they can use. The other is affordability, and this is a really big one, particularly for those people in the limited users, is that it's really expensive to be online. And so having data, a phone with the data and an NBN connection or something like that um, actually costs a lot of money. So if you're on low income, then it's really hard to be able to, to do that. And the third one is really around ability. So that's where you have the skills and confidence and the motivation um, to be able to be online. And that's really what Get Online Week is all about, is actually about supporting people to understand why they might want to go online in the first place and that actually it's not so scary because I think if you think about it I mean we all love the internet we're pro-tech but um, but for some people this is a completely different language um, so if you don't know um, what a mouse is you assume it's a small fluffy brown animal right that runs around outside 
or hopefully outside. Um, so, you know, so I think, you know, sometimes um, it's if you don't know the language, you haven't grown up with it, you haven't been exposed to it, it's a bit scary for people. So really this is all about people f- having fun and, and realising the benefits of being online. Um, oh, I'm so, I'm so excited by that. I was just thinking about my parents, like everything you were saying, I was just thinking about the first time my mom did an online banking transfer and just how empowered she felt after that. And like, I'd been telling her about it for years and she kept being like, oh, it's, it's hard. It's scary. But yeah, it is amazing to think about like the way that people will improve in their sense of self, not just in like their resources to access, but it changes your sense of who you are, the person who can bank online. Absolutely. Um, Makes you much more independent. You can do yeah. your own things. Yeah. Um, so thinking about Aussies, um, like Aussie specific challenges, I'm wondering, um, are we still seeing like sort of special challenges for Aussies in remote and rural areas? Um, like, do you want to give us a sense of if you're seeing lots of infrastructure problems still in people in the remote areas? Or are we seeing those like gaps closing up a bit? Well, look, over the last, so there's the Australian Digital Inclusion Index is what kind of helps us to measure this. And there's actually a new report coming out tomorrow. But um, but what we do know is that there is actually, um, you know, being in remote areas does does actually increase the likelihood of you being um, digitally excluded. And that's because it's really, it is hard for some of the the mobile phone reception to get there. Um, I know the NBN has been working really hard to make sure that SkyMaster is available for people. But again, it's quite expensive um, and and so if you're in remote indigenous communities for example often people are sharing one phone or one device and there's not public wi-fi and so if you don't have a library that's open that you can use the wi-fi for then it's really expensive to be able to to use that so i think that's definitely one of the the key areas um, that we need to continue working on is making sure that our remote communities have the same access as we do in the city for those who might not be aware, do you want to give a quick summary of what SkyMuster is? Because it's quite fascinating. <laughs> oh, I'm not definitely not the expert on SkyMuster, <laughs> but it's basically satellite that enables people to have access to broadband um, yeah. in the remote communities. Yeah. Beautiful. It has a very cool name. It does. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> So something that Laura and Dan and I speak about a lot is misinformation. And we wondered, how do you support people who might be more vulnerable to misinformation to become more confident in browsing the web and, and, you know, teach them some skills there? Yeah. So, look, we have a network of community partners that we work with that support people in their local community. And I think the number one thing is about having that trusted support and somebody that you trust and that you're happy to ask questions of. Um, and that's that's the number one. We call them digital mentors. So people that are happy to sit alongside you as you learn something new. Um, and the, one of their key focuses is around making sure that people understand how to analyse, critically analyse information that's on the internet. And, and to look at where you might get reliable information from. So, for example, we run a program around health um, and so we talk about how do you find reliable health information and making sure that if you're looking for information on COVID, that you're actually looking at a website that has a .gov.au at the end, you know. So it's those kinds of things, simple things that we often take for granted um, that is really important for people to start learning how to do um, so, um, and, and look, I think we can all get tricked at different times, but it oh. is really important um, that we, that people then have, have an opportunity to come to someone that they have been learning with and say, hang on a sec, I've found this thing and I'm not sure about it. Um, and can you tell me whether this is something that's 
fake news or that's a scam or something like that. So I think it's it's really about that peer learning as well. I love that you mentioned that we all get tricked sometimes because I think it's such a furphy to think that we can outskill our way out of danger and phishing attacks and all these things. Everybody's vulnerable and particularly to misinformation. Um, the Googling health issues is such a good example because that's the classic one where um, I've got some friends and we enlist each other and we go, I've got this little thing. It's not much. Can you Google it and tell me the first result that's not cancer you know can you tell me the first thing that's like a low barrier to entry sort of (laughs) the most likely Occam's razor thing it's going to be and you know I I want all people in our community to start having those sort of relationships so how can people who do feel that they're quite comfortable online how can they get involved yeah look I think we're always looking for people to help other people to to learn these skills and so um for for some people it might be about helping your your family member or somebody in your community that you know have noticed that that might be able to help and we actually have some really good tip sheets on the get online week website that talk about how to help others um and really the number one thing is be patient don't take the phone or the device off of them and do it for them. Um, and and just make sure that you understand what it is that they're wanting to do and what their motivation is. So that's, they're some of the key things. But certainly some of our community partners are always looking for people in to help others. And so that's definitely another way um, that people can get involved. And if they wanted to find you online to check out those resources, they would go yeah. to... Ah, they would go too. Good. Thank you very much. Um, getonlineweek.com um, is where you'd find the tips and resources. Um, and um, we also have a phone number. So if anybody listening, I don't know if your listeners will be in this case, but um, if anybody listening um, really um, wants to um, phone us to find out where that information is, then they can call us on 1300 795 So if there's someone you know that's looking for, um, looking for an event to go to or is looking for some support longer term, then they can call us and we'll find a community partner near them. I looked at your website and I've got to say I didn't notice that phone number. I think I've become a bit blind to them. <laughs> Jess, thank you so much for all your uh, information about the fabulous Get Online Week and all the best with the week. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. So we have two excellent Melbourne techies on the show. And for this segment, me and Vanessa are going to put on our human resources hats and conduct an exit interview for the city. The so, Melbourne... appropriate. so appropriate that Dan just played Nightmare for us. <laughs> Hopefully you won't be telling us that what you're doing is escaping your nightmare. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to kick off. So imagine I have my HR hat on and a pencil skirt and a clipboard. Um, <laughs> sorry, Vanessa, did you want to hop in? No, no. Okay. Yep. And I'm going to start off by running an interview with Gala. So here goes. Gala Camacho, you have spent the last eight years in Melbourne using your data and analytics skills to solve problems for both large established tech companies and teeny tiny startups. As you're leaving us for a new city, Thanks to agreeing to this snappy Melbourne exit interview. So to kick off, what did you like the most about tech culture in Melbourne? <laughs> that was such a great introduction, I just had to say. <laughs> I should grab that. <laughs> Write it down. Um, um, I guess I have to say that one of the best parts 
Aside from my partner, who I found in the tech scene in Melbourne. <laughs> oh, this is HR. Can we keep this professional, please? Um, I think what I have found has been kind of a really amazing insight into the power of, like, strong community and into the um, kind of the, the space that technology can create to really um, kind of elevate uh, important problems and really um, help to solve them. And so that has been something, because the tech scene in Melbourne is so small, um, you kind of, once you're in it, you kind of get your your hands all over in all the spots. So I think that's been really cool. And the flip side of this question is, what did you like the least about the tech scene in Melbourne? <laughs> okay, I won't go crazy. You <laughs> <laughs> might like, please be nice, eyes. <laughs> No, it's an exit interview. It's when you get to like spill all the beans. I guess maybe the two comments that I have about the, the tech scene in Melbourne has been that um, kind of in its community-driven um, kind of organic feeling, it also has a very elitist and um, exclusive feeling. And so um, there's been a lot of times where I have noticed a few, a few of people listening who know me know that I, I call this the, what I call the conference circle. Um uh, after the book, The Pregnancy Circle, where they all kind of speak at each other's conferences and they all organize conferences. And then it's so hard to make space for new voices and for new ideas um, because they kind of, they just like each other. And it's it's a really tight group um, that's hard to crack into. And I, I found that to be kind of disappointing. And then I guess uh, um, at the risk of, of making some people upset, it's a very white scene. And I think that's made me really... Um, the reality is it has really been in Melbourne when I have come around to really understanding my non-whiteness. And I think that in that exploration, that personal exploration has come a lot of um, kind of, uh, you know, really eye-opening moments of how white the Melbourne tech scene is. And in particular, for me, it happened a lot in the in the women groups that are just, they're just really dominated by white women. And I think that they don't make space for for um, for non-white women, and and I think that that is that's gonna come down. That's gonna one day that's gonna hunt them down. So I think that that is an important kind of conversation that needs to be had, and it causes a lot of discomfort when I've brought it up. So mm. I guess those are my two big generic comments about the tech scene here. They're totally fair. And perhaps to put my HR hat on and try and get something <laughs> constructive out of those criticisms, can you offer any feedback to people who might be involved in community management or conference management that, you know, techniques or ways that you think are good to hold space for other voices, new voices, people of color, people who might not be well represented in this scene already? Yeah. So I guess a good comment is is you do not have to follow popular models if you believe those models are broken. And so we are so keen to follow these American models. Um, and it's like, well, they're broken and they've yielded broken technology communities and stuff. And so why are we following them? I think that we have quite an intelligent community in Melbourne to develop new methodologies and new ways of exploring. And, and I think that that is kind of um, maybe not necessarily an answer on how to do it, but if, if something doesn't feel right, then just decide not to do it and instead enter into the exploration of better ways to do it. Um, I think that's one. And I think the other one is actually Vanessa taught me this and I've been spreading this everywhere, um, which is which is that you have the power to make space for people. So Vanessa, one time, I think it was the first time I met her, she told me that 
when she asks people to come into the show and speak, she sometimes uh, will, well, she will ask them, you know, can you bring someone um, that is not like you, you know, can you bring someone uh, from a different background, um, you know, a person of color, if you're a white person, and um, and then basically it's like, well, you force these people who are actually in very white uh, groups to bring other people, and you kind of highlight, if they don't actually have anyone, it highlights to them, like, hey, you know, may, this is something you maybe ought to think about a bit. And I think that that is something that I've been spreading um, in lots of when people ask me about my opinion about what is well, what is one pragmatic way to bring more diverse people, which is like, well, force people to connect you with those people, and that's how you can grow that network. Oh, um, thank you, and and I love that. I love that idea. Ask people to help, get them involved in the push, you know, and that way they feel like part of the solution too. It's it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so nice. I certainly didn't invent that. You know, I've learned it from someone as well. And there yeah, you go. Look at you pandering to HR right now. <laughs> We're both melting, so you're doing a good job. It's great. <laughs> Moving on because we have a checklist to cover. Okay. Does, did did our city, did the city of Melbourne, or rather, did Melbourne as a city have the features that you needed to succeed in your career development? Ooh. Um, wow, big, big question. I wasn't expecting it. I think that maybe I'll be a bit self-indulgent and I'll say that I succeeded partially because of my own um, doing and partially because of the scene. And so I think that the fact that there are opportunities here was a huge factor in me feeling successful and really um, pushing myself up. But I have to say that it came at a cost of knowing how to sell myself, knowing how to position myself. It also came at a cost for me to be really flexible when I was moving horizontally or um, uh, some people out there might not know I'm a career changer. I used to be a teacher and um, I, I had to learn how to move down in order to move up. And that is not something that's a privileged position. Not everyone is um, able and, and has the space to, to move down in order to move up. Some some people just fully can't even, for example, afford it. Um, but but I did, and that really helped me because it um, what it did do is is it it let me create opportunities for myself once I was in a company as opposed to from the outside, which is kind of much much harder. Um, so I think it did provide a lot of opportunities. The reality is in Melbourne, if you have time and space to connect with people, you are going to find opportunities. It's just the question is then, well, how do you make time and space to connect with all the people, you know? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And networking is, as you say, something that you need to have the privilege and the time to do. Like people yeah. who have care caregiving duties can't pop out to the city on the weeknights and go to the meetups. For sure. That's right. Yeah. And the space. And I think sometimes even just as adults, just personally, like fostering good relationships, just one of the factors is time. You have to have time to chat. You have to have time to connect over bonding experiences and all of these things. They just take time. And so I think that that's like um, that's a big part of it. Yeah, I think it's so great you called that out at a time where people are being told they'll change careers even more than ever. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people talk about that, you know, having to take a step back to take a step forward or the time involved in all of this as well. It's yeah. Really good call outs. Absolutely. Like I was just having a chat with a colleague about the difference between moving horizontally and moving vertically. And like, you know, if you've been in the same sector for a long time, it can be very hard 
hard to move both horizontally and vertically at the same time. Yeah. Um, and and again, like you need to have the privilege to maybe accept something of a pay cut if you want to do both, or to um, take some more time to do some more learning. And those are those are things that like you have to have the capability to do. Or you have to be a queen, little chess pansy there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. That's why she's the queen. I appreciate the chess pun. <laughs> So what does your new city offer? And maybe tell us a bit about where you're going that that influenced your decision to move there. Um, okay, I'll talk about our decision to move there because to noon because he'll have to answer that since it is his fault we are moving. <laughs> <laughs> but I will have, I will say that I was uh, fully on board and we're so we're gonna move to Cambridge. Um, but I've been looking um, in, London in London and kind of all over the space um actually a lot of places are remote it seems so so I've almost kind of expanded my my view quite worldly um what I have really found in look in kind of looking at the kind of job space in the UK it has been that their conversations about data and and what's going on with data are just so far beyond conversations that are have are being had here at like the most data-driven conversations I've attended, which the fact that I'm, um, you know, I head analytics at Neighborlytics, so obviously I'm very in, ingrained in the data space in Melbourne. And it's just been really um, overwhelming in a positive way of like, wow, it's like I'm in the space and now there's so much more for me to learn. They're really into their data standards and they are thinking about it from a government perspective, which I really, really... Um, I've been reading surveillance capitalism, and so um, this kind of government involvement has been something I've been kind of really thinking about. And and I like the, that the government is taking time and putting money behind making data standards, holding people accountable who are um, who who are kind of looking, who are gathering data. And there's so many um, small organizations, particularly from the advocacy side, who are creating heaps of noise in the space. Um, of, of kind of misuse of data and particularly around education. There's um, there's a, a recent thing happening with the A-levels where people kind of basically exploded about, um, you know, they try to predict students' grades and they gave them those grades and then people went nuts and then, um, you know, as, as you should. And then um, th this organization called Foxglove, they're also now investigating while well, YouTube is collecting data about your children. And so if the government's going to make children watch YouTube videos, then they got to have legislation, you know, against YouTube collecting data of children. It's illegal. Mm -hmm. And I really like that, that data conversation being kind of three steps ahead of what I've seen in Australia. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to try and find a job in that space. Um, yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is the feedback for Australian and, and Melbourne council work is to start thinking more about how we should be regulating that stuff and bringing it into the industry government conversation. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, it's, a, it's naive for us to keep using this whole, like tech is moving faster than legislation. Mm. We need to stop like legislation can move. If we, we are technology builders and if we can move fast, well, we can get involved in legislation and make it move fast as well. Like, why, if, if it hasn't stopped us from building robots, why would it stop us from building legislation? Mm. And I think that is something that is really new to me. I was very stuck in this, like, well, legislation is slow and the mm. innovators are moving. And now I'm kind of realizing, like, actually, if you get the technologist people involved with legislation, it can move just as fast. Um, and it, it, can, it, it can see forward. 
What a great reframing of the problem. Now, Gala, I'm so sorry, but we really have to wrap up this interview. So to have our final really quick question, on a scale of zero to 10, would you recommend <laughs> us to a friend? <laughs> I think um, I, I think I would, I would recommend, I would say my team <laughs> to <laughs> all of my friends on a scale of, ten, of one to 10, <laughs> a 10. Okay, fair enough. Oh, I love that view. Um, just, just, thanks for having me. Thank just, you so much, Gala. That was a great chat. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Now, Mr. Noon Vandersilk. Melbourne has been fortunate to have you working in a range of roles for mm, roughly 18 years, using skills in AI, deep learning, machine learning, all sorts of learning, quantum computing and quantum machine learning. As you're leaving us for a new city, thanks for agreeing to this snappy Melbourne exit interview. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So in the spirit of um, equity, we started with questions that were all the same for all of our exit interviews, but I'm a wild child, so sometimes I drift a little. And I wanted to know, as a business founder and uh, someone who founded his own business is probably True. at the top of that business, I wondered, what was your relationship with your manager like? <laughs> my relationship with my manager? With you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, like, early on, I was, I was very, very lazy. And like basically quite disappointed in the amount of work I was doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> there wasn't much I could do about it. <laughs> but I did, I did, I did uh, spend some time in a new co-working space and I, I met people. So that was the, a pretty good move. <laughs> it is certainly um, challenging, we know, for people in such a powerful role to uh, hold themselves to account at times. Do you, do you have any words of wisdom for uh, other people we might meet in that situation? around, you know, did you have any any time management sort of still skills that were the, the key to everything or were you a Pomodoro man? Oh, God, I wish. I think, like, my what I do is I get really obsessed with all these, like, time issue tracking things and I just write everything that I want to do down on them and then I never go back. Um, and I find that to be, like, a really effective way of <laughs> de-stressing. <laughs> It's like that everything in Trello, then forget your password. And you're like, oh, <laughs> Sounds incredibly therapeutic. Yeah, um, in a similar vein, what do you do when morale is low? How do you how do you pick that up? You know, as a founder, that's a that's a really important question, I think. Yeah, I think I had a pretty pretty good technique in um, this co-working space I was at in um, in Fitzroy. There was a place just downstairs that sold this really delicious chocolate brownie. And so when I was feeling pretty bad, I would just I would just go have the chocolate brownie, and like I can't say it made me do more work, but like it was it was pretty good to go for a walk. It can't be productivity I mean, yeah. 100% of the time. You can tell my business was very successful. Like. <laughs> Look, Noon, do you put much stock in um, business mentors or, or mentors of any kind? I yeah, it's that's a pretty good question. I one time, uh, I hope I don't get anyone in trouble, but like one time I met. I met a business mentor and they were kind of giving me advice and they were, they were like sitting down at the table and, and talking to me about how I need to make my business scale and, and all these kind of things. Growth hacking. Oh yeah. And, and I think like, and, I, and at the time I think I said, I said something like, thanks, that's so useful. 
And like, I immediately went back and like talked to Gala and I said, I just had like, I met this mate and I've decided like, I'm absolutely never going to have a business that scales. That's my plan. Like my plan is going to be not grow big. And I, I can tell you this, I was very successful. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think if you find I, the I right person. That is interesting, right, though, because these are really valid choices to make. Like, how big do you want to be? What sort of work do you want to be doing? You know, um, did you did you have uh, friends around you with experience in the tech sector as well who would be, you know, more of your trusted advisors? Was that more of an approach you, um, you took? Oddly enough, I probably didn't ask anyone for advice. Classic, <laughs> classic uh white man I guess I kind of just decided on my own what I wanted to do and white man probably, slash iconoclast you know yeah. who knows like <laughs> <laughs> but like what I what I decided the actual person that I took the most advice from is is uh, I don't know if I've talked people some people might know my hero in in life is this person called Christopher Alexander and he's an architect um and so I kind of tried to run my business um in the Christopher Alexander style uh, you know, so so yeah, I think that's that's kind of someone that I was that that I was pretty keen on. His basic approach, and I, there, I was just reading before this call, there was a really interesting paper that came out by some people from Google and around the place called Against Scale, and basically the idea is like maybe scale scaling businesses is kind of like anti-diverse because it's like you try and treat. Uh, whoever you're selling to is like a like a kind of in a homogenous way, yeah, exactly. And so it makes it kind of hard to like account for different life experiences. And so the, the kind of idea is like maybe you should run everything from like bottom up instead of top down. Um, and so that's kind of Christopher Alexander's view about building. Oh, uh, it's very it's very radical. Like it's very grassroots sort of yeah. thing. But you yeah. can do that if you're in a in a deep niche the way you are. Is that what you feel like? You know, because because you've got some very specific skills. You know, people don't necessarily expect you to have to be broad because you go deep. Although no, I mean, I it does look like you have a broad like, range. <laughs> I think even like even like really simple local businesses can kind of operate in this way. I, I think I think it like in some sense it depends on like how much you charge for what you're selling. Right. It's like you kind of have to have a sustainable business, which uh, I can tell you I did not. <laughs> I wasn't charging enough for what I was selling, but people wouldn't buy it at any higher cost. <laughs> so then let's look at your business again. What what did your best day on the job look like? Ah, oh, my best. I mean, the, so my business was around teaching people deep learning. And so kind of my best day would be when I was just teaching. Like I just loved interacting with people. Uh, probably one of my favorite things to do would be like someone would come and ask me a question and be like, how do you do this exercise? And I would go to them. I don't know. How do you do it? Because <laughs> like, that's your job, not my job. <laughs> and that that's kind of interacting with the students was, was by far the most fun thing. I loved it. I can definitely see the, the truth in that kind of radiating out of your face. Uh, my learned colleague, Laura, Indeed. Um, what do you think? Are, are there other, some other questions we need to ask to make sure that this is an equitable exit interview? Well, obviously we need to ask our NPS question, but we can save that for the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But I would like to I would like to get a sense because Noon, you've had a different career trajectory and you've had a different experience to Gala. So I'd love to hear your impressions on the tech scene in Melbourne and what what the good, the bad, and the ugly is. Yeah, I think like the 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 good is kind of kind of similar to what Gala said. It's like probably the thing that I've had the best time with is like the small community. And I think really for me personally, I think the tech scene in Melbourne was a was where I was able to find my place and find where I belonged. I think like before kind of getting in that community, I really didn't feel like I belonged in Melbourne, frankly. So um, I think that was really, really good for me personally. I think one thing that I've kind of talked to a few people about recently, um, maybe one, one way to phrase it is this idea, which is like, I've noticed like Melbourne has a lot of really diverse people like there's a great arts culture here you know there's heaps of culture here and I think what I've found is like the tech community can make it very hard for those people to get in and I and I think like there's a lot of people that maybe what you'd call like multidisciplinaries like people with like lots of different skills maybe they're very um you know they're mature uh, employees like they'll be really good if you can find the right projects for them but they're lacking certain skills, right? Maybe they need to more programming experience or more AI experience or more UX experience. But the point is like a lot of these tech companies, certainly the medium to large size ones, they have people with these skills. So I often think like, can't there be a way to include these people in your companies? Let Give them like 80% of kind of work that's maybe not necessarily their dream but then kind of mentor them on the 20%, which is their dream. And it's like, these people will be really great employees and like everyone wins. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that like, I just talk a lot to people that feel like they'll never get a job unless they get to have like a personal interaction with, you know, the CEO. And as, as you know, you and Gala were talking about, it's, it's quite hard to do that because you need to, you know, you need to be so on in your networking and you need to like, be so charming to charm your way up to the CEO. It's like, it's really quite hard. Are you, are you saying that charm is not a strength of the majority of people in the tech sector? <laughs> oh, no, yeah, sure. You yeah, know, absolutely. <laughs> it is. You're all great. You're all great. <laughs> Everyone's socially normal and perfect. <laughs> to, to take my HR hat and give it one more little tweak, I will say that I think an opportunity to solve some of these diversity and inclusion problems problems is to allow people to step sideways in their careers and to acknowledge the existing computer logic skills they have that may not be formalized as computer programming. That's something I've observed in my career as well. And it's something that I think we could take more advantage of people who have similar ways of thinking, but don't know the same languages or don't have the syntax available to them. Yeah. Uh, in the I'm gonna, spirit I'm gonna, of... I'm going to sneak in a comment. Sorry. Yeah. I, I guess just to add to that is like, the reality is there's a huge part of our tech scene that could learn from those multidisciplinarians. And I think that the appreciation of those skills and the actual making of space within your company for, for people, who, for example, who are bad collaborators or bad communicators, um, uh, who, who are bad, for example, like understanding context, to make space for them to actually learn that not only makes them better technologists, but then allows more people in the technology um, space. So, so it's, it's a bi-directional win. And I think that's the part that sometimes um, managers get wrong. You know, they, they don't see, they don't see the dollar immediately and, and yeah. then they decide against it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, so true. Um, we do have to ask, would you recommend us to a friend, Noon, zero to 10? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'd recommend us to, to myself. Like, <laughs> in Gala, we'll be back. We'll be back, no doubt. So, That's all we want to hear. That's all we want to hear. We'll come back someday. Um, in the spirit of 360 degrees feedback, we'd like to share our appreciation for what you've brought to the scene here. Um, I think that it's very clear to our audience that you're incredibly sharp people who, you know, take a very multifaceted approach to problem solving and those sort of brains are always welcome. But above and beyond that, I think your generosity, your warmth, um, your, you know, your sense of humour that you bring to everything is just a joy and uh, you're really going to be missed in Melbourne. So, so thank you so much for joining us before you go. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to Bite Into It with Dan, Laura and Vanessa, and we have had one hell of a show. It's been great. Before we go, we do want to leave people with one amazing event that's coming up. Uh, as with all the events we've been spruiking these days, it is virtual and it's free. It's happening on Wednesday, November the 4th from 5pm and it's the Melbourne University Accelerator Program Demo Day. So for those who don't know, the Accelerator Program um, helps a whole bunch of uh, founding businesses kind of get their start and sort of coaches them through. And Demo Day is the time that they get to show off how far they've come, you know, share a bit of their, their journey and their potential. Um, you can access a live stream from the main stage featuring pictures from 10 of their founders. There's also a bunch of interactive um, startup expo spaces featuring founders and alumni and special offers for people. So whether you are someone interested in investing or interested just because you want to know what ideas are coming out um, or what have you, there's many reasons to go to the MAP 20 Demo Day. So just Google Melbourne University Accelerator Program Demo Day. Big show. Thanks so much to our guests this evening, Jess Wilson, Gala Camacho and Noon van der Silk. Thanks to our hosts, Dan Morganti and Laura Summers, our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Have a great night, everyone. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.